I think the cleverest possible manner in which you could batter down a point of truth is to use that very point of truth as a big lie, to take the very cardinal point of a major point of truth or a doctrine and to twist that point or to pervert that point so that you scarcely recognize it is one of the most effective tools Satan the devil has used in perpetrating the great lie. And one of the greatest lies that has ever been perpetrated upon the entire world, and especially the so-called Christian professing world, is the lie that Jesus Christ of Nazareth died to do what? To, as much as anything else, free you from the obligation to obey God's law. It was all nailed to the cross long ago, is what they say. It was all nailed up there to the cross by the Sabbath, the holy days, tithing, everything we do, why people ridicule these ideas of diet and these stringent restrictions upon people. They say that was all nailed to the cross. Let's have the courage to open up the Bible, the Word of God, and let's find out exactly what the Bible says about the Old and the New Covenant. Now, what was the Old Covenant? Turn to Exodus, the 19th chapter where you will see what the Old Covenant really is. The Old Covenant is not the Ten Commandments of God. The Old Covenant is not tithing. The Old Covenant is not the annual holy days, beginning with the Passover and culminating in the Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day. The Old Covenant is not dietary restriction. The Old Covenant is exactly what it says in the 19th chapter of the book of Exodus and other scriptures I'm going to show you. Beginning in verse 3, Moses went up unto God, and the Eternal called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and if you will keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure, a special priceless treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And that is exactly what Moses did. He proposed to the people of Israel that if they would do what? If they would obey God's voice. And what was God's voice about to speak, as you read in the next chapter of your Bible? What had God's voice already spoken? As you can go back to the 16th chapter and notice a little bit, long before now the giving of the codification or the giving of the Decalogue, the codifying of the Ten Commandments by the very finger of God graven in stone, you see in the 16th chapter of the book of Exodus, beginning in verse 4, Moses said in the Eternal, uh, the, the Eternal rather said unto Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven upon you and for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day, that I may test them, or prove them, whether they will walk in my law or not. Well, then the Ten Commandments, the law of God, is spoken of, not only here, but back to Abraham in the book of Genesis. Every one of the Ten Commandments are revealed from the opening chapters of Genesis to the 19th chapter of the book of Exodus, before the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. 
And you can prove that even known to ancient kings of Babylon and of Egypt, they knew when a curse came upon the land as it did during the days of one of the Ptolemies or one of the Pharaohs, when the women could not give birth to children. And he knew that the wages of sin is death. And he knew that the Ten Commandments of God, the laws of God, were absolutely living. They were extant. They were alive. They were going to judge you. And he knew there was a penalty for breaking them, and he knew the penalty was death. The Ten Commandments of God came into existence when? Why, they came into existence when God Almighty began to reveal to Adam his way of life, when he began to reveal to the patriarchs who walked in God's laws. And you can read about Enoch, the seventh from Adam. It's a very interesting and a very exciting study to find out that Enoch was not the seventh from Adam. If you're going to talk firstborn to firstborn, or if you're going to talk just genealogically, second, thirdborn, anything else, he was the seventh man of God, and there were certain exceptions and certain missing people, and Seth, in place of Cain or Abel, was counted as the one to follow after Adam. And you can prove that, and you can see that Noah himself was one man of God, a preacher of righteousness. And what is righteousness? Psalm 119, 172, all thy commandments are righteousness. Even Noah was preaching about the Ten Commandments of God. The laws of God were known. God had revealed them not only to his own people, but even some of the people in so-called pagan nations knew that God's Ten Commandments were in effect prior to gathering those Ten Commandments, as it were, into a code, putting them on tablets of stone, the most permanent possible writing materials you could use, and giving them in part of a whole panorama of laws as the fulcrum, as the primary part of a whole panorama of laws, a whole system which would be the charter, which would be like the, the bylaws, which would be like the, the constitution to a nation which was God's nation under a theocracy that included a whole set of other laws that are called statutes and judgments. Now, the Ten Commandments of God did not usher in the Sabbath, but what did they do? They pointed back to the Sabbath. The Sabbath day was made when man was made. When was man made? Man was made at creation. And you see, in that very final day of creation, Adam in the Garden of Eden, the seventh day Sabbath comes on the evening of that final sixth day of creation after Adam has mentioned what he thought the animals looked like. He probably called an elephant a long nose instead of a thick skin the way the Greeks did and probably had different names. And God was right there, the one that became Jesus Christ, in the garden with him. They spent quite a day, I should imagine, on that preparation day on Friday. And then came the seventh day Sabbath. And God, by resting from his work, put his presence in that seventh day, and he hallowed it, and he made it holy. By the time, then, centuries later, remember that one-sixth of all of human history transpired from the time of Adam in the Garden of Eden until the flood of Noah. That's hard for us to really get that perspective, that one-sixth of all time from creation until today had gone by by the time of the flood. We tend to think of it as a few weeks because we can read it in a few chapters. And by the time you get to the sixth and seventh chapter of Genesis, you have already passed over a sixth of human history. During that time, God's laws were known. 
And Noah was a preacher of those laws, obeyed them and kept them, and no doubt took aboard that ark the eleven documents that comprise the creation hymn, as it's called. They're actually in a meter in the Hebrew language. The first few chapters of the book of Genesis, to me, are an eyewitness account. I think that no doubt Adam and perhaps Seth and perhaps Enoch and some of the others had a hand in putting down some of the tables of nations, the genealogies, and some of that which later on became reposed inside the ark. Noah, no doubt, added to it. Moses didn't write all of the Old Testament just with some sort of guided writing some night sitting along a campfire with his eyes glazed over, staring into space and his hand automatically going over a page. Why, there were many other contributors to Holy Writ. And just like a family might carry a family Bible around through the generations and add the births and the deaths and keep a family record, so they did back during that day. Now we come down to the beginning of the revealing of God's will, of God's purpose, of God's way of life to a completely paganized group of people who have come out of slavery and captivity. And they have known all sorts of polytheistic gods. They think God looks like a calf, the calf of an oxen. They remember the scarabs, that kind of a huge big beetle in Egypt, and that the Egyptians actually embalmed even insects. And in King Tut's tomb, for example, there are tiny little sarcophagi for scarabs. And here on the monuments in the walls of some of the tombs there are pictures of alligators and foxes and snakes and lizards and jackals and eagles and oxen and all kinds of animals with the heads of man or man with the head of a fox, and they had ideas of all kinds of gods. Well, so did the ancient Israelites. And so God said to Moses out of a burning bush, when Moses said, Well, what is your name, Lord? Whom shall I say told me to come to talk to these people? He heard a voice that said, I am. You tell them, I am that I am. Now that means I am the ever-living one, the life self-inherent within itself. I am life. I am the source of all eternity. He said, I am is my name. Now when Jesus said that later on, because they knew exactly what that meant, when he said that to some of the Pharisees, when he said, I am that I am, yea, verily, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus was saying, before Abraham was, I was there. I existed. I was alive. My life antedates Abraham, the most revered of the fathers to the Jewish religion. And here was a human being saying, before Abraham walked the earth, I am. Oh, it made them so furious. They absolutely tried to murder him on the spot. They wanted to kill him because he was saying, he was God-life, changed into the human flesh. It was quite a testimony to them. Now here comes this great God, and he says such simple things. What's technical about this? If you will obey my voice indeed, verse 5, and keep my covenant. A covenant is an agreement between two parties. And God proposed, and they said, yes, we will. Then he talked about, if you'll keep my voice, obey my voice, keep my covenant, you will be a peculiar treasure. You'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You'll be the teachers of all the rest of the human race. He began to say, beginning in verse 7, when Moses called the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Eternal commanded him, and all the people answered together, they must have talked about it. There must have been a lot of discussion. And when they heard all this wonderful proposition of what God had said, I will be your God. 
and you will be my people. He revealed himself as Yahweh Rophika, God our healer, the eternal that heals us. He is Yahweh Nisai, God our shield, our banner, and our flag. He is the God who preserves, defends, and protects us. He's the God who inspires us, who heals us, who gives us life, rain in due season, healthy babies, successful and happy marriages, fruitful and productive jobs, safe, protected homes and farmlands, safe from our enemies from without, promises us peace and protection in our homeland. Let's turn to a very remarkable chapter, Jeremiah, the 11th chapter. Jeremiah, the 11th chapter, and beginning in verse 1, see a little bit more about the old so-called covenant. I put the word old in quotes a little bit, and you'll see why just a little later on. In chapter 11, in verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Eternal, saying, Hear ye the words of this covenant, and speak unto the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and say unto them, Thus says the Lord Eternal of Israel, Cursed be the man that obeys not the words of this covenant, which I commanded your fathers when? In the day that I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, What? Obey my voice, and do them according to all which I command you, so shall you be my people, and I will be your God, that I may perform the oath which I have sworn unto your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, as it is this day. And then I answered and said, So it be, or so be it, O eternal. And the Eternal said unto me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear ye the words of this covenant, and do them. For I earnestly protested unto your fathers in the day that I brought them, at them up out of the land of Egypt, and even unto this day, rising early and protesting, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they obeyed not, nor inclined their ear, but walked everyone in the imagination of their evil heart. Therefore... I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did them not, because a part of the covenant included the hazards and the benefits. It had the cause and effect relationship, the cause for unleashing or unlocking the outpouring of blessings from heaven above so that there was no place to receive them all, or unleashing upon their suffering heads the greatest curses and blights and blemishes that could ever be the misfortune of people to suffer. But they walked everyone in the imagination of their evil heart. Therefore I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do, but they did them not. And the Eternal said unto me, A conspiracy is found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They are turned back to the iniquities of their fathers which refused to hear my words, and they went after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant which I made with their fathers. They have broken the covenant. They were the ones who were wrong. There was nothing wrong with the covenant whatsoever. In Ezekiel, the 16th chapter, I won't take time to read this all, but Ezekiel is quite a lengthy chapter, the 16th chapter, and it has to do with the proposal of the covenant, and it shows Jerusalem, in this case again, the type of the nation of Israel, as well as being the type of the church, that they did prosper into a kingdom. This is the analogy beginning in chapter 16 and verse 2 and 3 of how there was a little baby there that was not washed in water, was not salted or swaddled. Then I pitied thee, verse 5. I passed by you and saw you polluted in your own blood, verse 6. 
and how he took this little cast-off baby, and verse 7 caused her to multiply until it said she became a full-blown, full-grown young woman, a beautiful woman. And verse 8, the latter half said, Yea, I swear unto thee, and entered into a covenant with thee, said the Lord Eternal, and you becamest mine. She said, Yes, I will. That's a great proposal. And God said he became an husband unto them. Actually, that's in Jeremiah 4 and verse 14. I am married unto you, he said to the children of Israel. Now he said in verse 13, the last half of it, that you were exceedingly beautiful, and you did prosper into a kingdom. And your renown went forth among the heathen for your beauty, for it was perfect through my comeliness which I had put upon thee, says the Eternal. It makes me wish I had the statements of Abraham Lincoln that were read during, world, during the uh, Civil War in the United States about how people had risen up in haughty vanity to suppose that the great benefits and the blessings of this gorgeous land of the United States were somehow the result of the work of our own hands. And God said, it is my bounty, it is my blessing. I was the one that gave you your comeliness, which I put upon you. We did not produce this land. The land was here. We inherited the land. And the abundance and the blessings of this great land have been misused, abused, ripped off, perverted. They have been sullied and polluted beyond our belief to comprehend because of the breaking of God's law. Well, then you can read the rest of this of how his wife, Israel, became a whore. And worse than most other whores, as it goes on to say through the entirety of this very lengthy chapter, worse than other whores in verse 33, other people creeping in give gifts to all whores, but you give your gifts to all your lovers and hire them that may come to you on every side for your whoredom. Verse 35, Wherefore, O harlot, hear the word of the Eternal, and it talks about the great curses that are going to fall out upon the people of God's own nation. He begins to say, even in verse 48, As I live, says the Lord Eternal, Sodom, your sister is not done, she nor her daughters as you have done. And in verse 31, 51, rather, Neither has Samaria committed half your sins, but you've multiplied your abominations more than they. It's a marriage agreement. God likens it to a young, beautiful girl. He proposes, she accepts, they have a ceremony, they're living happily ever after, and lo and behold, he discovers that she took his money and his wealth and was actually giving them out to her lovers and entertaining them on the side. In Jeremiah, the 31st chapter, now let's turn to that famous chapter which has to do with Old and New Covenant, Jeremiah 31. Notice beginning in verse 29, no, make it number 31, verse 31 of chapter 31 of Jeremiah. Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that I will make a new covenant. Do you think for one instant the new covenant was made at the time of the death of Jesus Christ? Is that what you think? Is that what Protestantism thinks? Do they think Christ came and Christ made a new covenant? Is the new covenant made with the church? The time will come, the days come, says the Eternal, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, the Jews. Is the nation of Israel over there in Palestine in the Middle East a nation under the terms and the conditions of the new covenant? Has God yet made a new covenant? 
proposed it, spelled it out, made it clear to them, presented it to them, and received an answer to them? Did they actually, as a race and as a nation, reject the terms and conditions of the new covenant so that it will never more be proposed to them and they are cut off forever and ever? Or didn't Paul in the 11th chapter of Romans tell the Gentiles not to boast against the natural branches because if you, as the unnatural branches, can be grafted into the natural olive tree and if God spared not the natural branches, it said he came to his own and his own received him not. And from henceforth I will turn to the Gentiles, said the apostle Paul. And he said that now salvation of the house of Cornelius, Peter was given to understand that now salvation is open to the Gentiles. And so the apostle Paul said that they were not to boast against the Jews, because if you as an unnatural branch can be grafted into the natural olive tree, how much more the natural branches themselves that can finally be grafted back into the natural olive tree, meaning the Jews brought back and to become, as he says, one stick in my hand with Ephraim and with Judah. So the days come, he says, when I, God Almighty, and the very one that became Jesus Christ in the New Testament, said, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, says the Eternal. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. What are those days? Let's keep asking that question as we go along in these scriptures. We will see the time element. I will put my law in their inward parts, and I will write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. There's this, this interesting thing about God, and do you understand that? And going through history, and going through the nature and the attributes of God, and the Word of God, having specialists, and teachers, and priests, and preachers, and educators, and instructors, and people wearing sacerdotal robes and garments who are instructing other people about God. Here's what God is like. That's what he's like, because he said at that time, then, in those days, then, at that time, they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, says the Eternal, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Is that talking about the church? Or is it talking about the house of Israel and the house of Judah and those of the Jewish people? Then the new covenant, according to the word of God, according to the book of Jeremiah, is a covenant, an agreement concerning God's law to yet be proposed to the people of the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and that includes the Jewish people. Let's understand a few things about the old covenant. The Sabbath was not brought into being by the old covenant. It had been extant for centuries, far more than one-sixth of all human history from then until now, by the time the Old Covenant was ever proposed to a nation coming out of slavery in ancient Egypt. Because the Sabbath was made at creation, and even the fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, for in six days the eternal made heaven and earth to see and all that in them is and rested on the Sabbath day. The great covenant that God proposed between himself and the nation of Israel and Judah back then did not bring into existence the Passover. 
It was proposed in the very same time frame when he brought them out of Egypt and God revealed his power unto them by the miracles at the time of the Passover, and we'll see a reference to that a little bit later on. Tithing did not come in with the old covenant. It was not a part of the covenant agreement, essentially, although it was contained in the book of the law. And the book of the law, which really by extension is the entire first five books of the Old Testament or the Torah, the five books that were five separate scrolls from Genesis to Deuteronomy. And that's called the law. Jesus refers to the three divisions in the Old Testament of the Bible several times in the New by talking about the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. There are the law, the writings, which include other books other than the Psalms, like Job and some of the others, Song of Solomon, and there are the prophets, meaning the former and the latter, or the three main prophets, and then the many smaller prophecies that are in the Bible. Sometimes the law includes all five books of the Bible, of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Sometimes, if you look very carefully, we're going to see an example of that, it is talking about the book of the law, and that was a scroll, or a series of scrolls. And it was kept in a side compartment, like racks, just like the reading racks that would have the local newspapers on sticks. You may have seen those. You probably have never seen scrolls in the way they're contained. The closest thing we would have today, I suppose, is a, a player piano scroll. If anybody has a player piano and boxes that they keep those rolled up player piano sheets in, well, that's the nearest representation I can think of for the way the book of the law must have looked. Because in the side of the Ark of the Covenant, an ark which was a decorative testimonial wrought out of gold and very fine wood such as ebony that said there was a great covenant, a great agreement between God and his people. Inside, under the mercy seat, what was there? There was a linen ephod, there was a stone jar that had an actual sample with a lid on it of manna that fell in the wilderness, and there were the two tables of the Ten Commandments. It was the ark that was an ark of the covenant, an ark of the agreement between God and the people of Israel. In the side of it was the book of the law. You see, even the difference then between the status that it occupied in the place in the ark between the Ten Commandments of two tablets of stone and the book of the law as a separate series of scrolls that were in the side of the ark of the covenant. Now, I ask again before we go on, with whom is God going to make his new covenant? I ask again, is it the church? Yes, I know all about spiritual Israel. Yes, I have not forgotten Galatians 3.29. If ye be Christ centered, you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. But what promise? The promise of eternal inheritance of the land that is now a spiritual promise, but to Abraham he also made a promise that of Abraham there would come races and nations, and his seed would become as the stars of the heavens, and would spread abroad to the north, the south, the east, and the west, and would eventually inherit the entirety of the earth. And Abraham is going to be resurrected and be in the kingdom of God, and actually live to see that come to pass. But the separate covenant that was approached, or let's say laid out before the people of Israel, came at the time of the gathering of a kingdom, a nation, of kings and priests, the nation of Israel, out of captivity in ancient Egypt. And again, I emphasize that the new covenant is going to be proposed and finally is going to be ratified to the people, it says in the word of God, are the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
And a lot of people haven't gotten that distinction. I don't know why. It's right there in front of our eyes. He is saying that the United States of America and the nation of Britain and Canada and South Africa and Australia and New Zealand and the people of Denmark and Norway and Sweden and Finland and very likely much of the nation of France and Belgium and Holland and of Luxembourg are going to finally hear it all spelled out exactly as did those millions of people at the foot of Mount Sinai when they went back to their encampments and it could have taken place over a period of many, many days where they listened to their leaders spell out the terms and conditions of the old covenant, as it's called, and eventually all of these people will hear the terms and conditions of the new covenant. And he said, I will put my laws in their inward parts and stamp them right inside their heart and their mind, almost like emblazoned in their brains as a very part of their being. Now, tithing did not come into existence, was not brought into being by the old covenant. The first mention of tithing is clear back again with Abraham, with Melchizedek, and that's mentioned in the ninth chapter of the book of Hebrews, about how even in the loins of his progenitor, about three fathers ahead of the actual birth of Levi, that Abraham did pay tithes to the Melchizedekan priesthood and that Jesus Christ himself is made in high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And it explains that in that very deep book of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, or the New Covenant, the New Will. Let's turn to 1 Samuel 15 and verse 22. 1 Samuel 15 and verse 22, a scripture that a lot of people have memorized. This is an interesting one from another point of view, too, and that is that rebellion is called here a sin that is so bad, it's just like the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry. But notice beginning in verse 22, Samuel said, 1 Samuel 15, 22, has the eternal as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the eternal. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of ram. Now let's turn to Jeremiah, the seventh chapter, and read beginning in verse 21. Jeremiah 7 and verse 21. Thus says the eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, Put your burnt offerings under your sacrifices and eat flesh. Interesting statement coming from a God who apparently gave them all of these washings and ablutions and the daily. Every morning they had the morning offering, they had an evening offering, they had the special offerings on the annual holy days, they had to sprinkle everything with blood and then wash it up and clean it and get ready to do it again the next day. And yet here is God saying, Go ahead and put your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and enjoy a steak for pity's sake. Enjoy the meat. Make a roast out of it. Have a barbecue, he's saying. You're out here sacrificing. Enjoy a barbecue. For I spake not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But what did he speak? We've already read in Exodus 19. He spake the terms and conditions of the old covenant. Now I ask you, according to this scripture, were sacrifices a part of the Old Covenant? If sacrifices were not a part of the Old Covenant, if they did not usher in the Old Covenant, if the Old Covenant did not include all sorts of sacrifices, 
then the phasing out of being or the gradual decaying or waxing old, and we're going to see a little different terminology used in the Bible, I'm afraid, than many people are used to because a lot of people think the old covenant is already done away and they couldn't be more in error. The old covenant is not yet done away, and I'm going to prove it to you out of the word of God that, after all, is our sole criterion and is the judge that will judge us in written form. We may be able to get rid of a lot of supposition of cobwebs and darkened corners of our minds right here in one sermon this afternoon just by looking at what the Bible says. I spake not unto them, your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this thing commanded I them, saying, and we read it in the 19th chapter of the book of Exodus, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk you in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it might be well with you. But they didn't listen. They were the ones who were in error, and because they did not hearken, and because they were stiff-necked, and because they did not receive correction, we're going to find out that God later on added a terrible burden around their necks. He gave them a rather sordid, horrible, ugly, constant, day-by-day schoolmaster, he called it, as a reminder to just rub their noses in the fact that sin requires death, sin requires blood that you have made your lives and your nation and your families and your jobs a bloody mess, and it's going to take blood to eradicate it all. It was added. Originally, when that covenant was proposed, God had nothing to say whatsoever, according to the Word of God, about sacrifices. It came later. Now, there was one sacrifice that was part and parcel of the initial great miracle that he intended to observe every single year, and that was the only one, and that had to do with the Passover. And that was not something that every priest did for the people to make an atonement. It was something that every family did for themselves. And they roast the lamb, and they ate a lamb roast. And I would say that I know in my own case one of the most delicious meals you can ever eat is a beautiful leg of lamb roast if it's done really right with the vegetables all around and cooked in slow heat with all the vegetables and the flavor and the herbs and maybe some mint jelly. It just tastes absolutely gorgeous. There was nothing necessarily ugly about that at all. It was a beautiful dinner. And they all roast and ate that lamb. And they also sprinkled the blood or wiped it with a sprig of hyssop on their doors and the lintels and so on of their windows and doors so the death angel would pass on by or go right on over or pass over, and that's where the name came from. It could be called your skip over or your omission or your pass on by or your Passover. Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us. That one sacrifice would have been sufficient to point them toward the need of a Savior and would have been the one most important way by which they could have had that done to them, and they could have been given remembrance every single year. So again, I emphasize, the Old Covenant was proposed and was made between God and the nations of the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and it had nothing to do with sacrifices. I spake not concerning sacrifices. I said only, Obey my voice, and I'll be your God, and you shall be my people. 
It did not bring into existence the Sabbath. It did not bring into existence tithing. And therefore, if it is going to wax old and gradually decay and finally become inapplicable, it will not take out of existence that which it did not bring into existence. It cannot eradicate that upon which it was not even based. The Old Covenant did not bring into existence the Sabbath day, but as a part of what God intended when he said, Will you obey my voice? He reaches back here and holds out in front of them in the way of Moses as an intermediary the Ten Commandments. Now, by the way, when I say obey my voice, here are my laws. My laws that have been in existence from all eternity. They've been going along for as long as I have existed because they explain my nature and my purpose, my attitude, the right way of life that you as neighbor and friend ought to, explain, ought to exemplify, ought to live one with the other. The Ten Commandments are not a yoke of bondage, but the most beautiful and holy and righteous law imaginable. Now notice a little later on in Galatians, I want to turn to the third chapter of the book of Galatians that has to do with the book of the law. The third chapter of the book of Galatians. A couple of very important points, very simple points in one way, and there's no reason to make them very difficult. In this third chapter of the book of Galatians, beginning in verse 17, now that we have that background, he said, And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ. Interesting that here again is one more proof. You never thought of it that way, I imagine. Together with John, the first chapter, and Hebrews, the first chapter, with 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 4, with Deuteronomy 32 and other scriptures, here is another proof that the very being who was there, who was working with Moses, who was in the burning bush, who wrote the Ten Commandments with his finger, who parted the Red Seas, who wrestled with Jacob, spoke to Abraham, dealt with the patriarchs and the prophets, was the personality of the God family, the Godhead who became Jesus Christ. This I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. The law that was added 430 years after a promise, and that promise was given to Abraham 430 years earlier. A promise of what? A promise of the kingdom of God, of the eternal inheritance of the land, of life everlasting, of all the blessings of the whole world. For if the inheritance be of the law, it doesn't really matter if people want to argue this needs to mean the Ten Commandments. It doesn't. This means the book of the law, the entire third chapter of this book of Galatians is talking about the works of the law and the Greek word ergon in verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit by the ergon of the law, the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? That has to do with the back-breaking, tedious, day-in, day-out works of the law, meaning that book of the law that was contained in the side of the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark representing the agreement between God and the people, and securely underneath the mercy seat inside, next to that little stone jar of manna and the linen ephod, were the Ten Commandments. The book of the law were in the side. So this is that book of the law, and we'll read a little more about it. If the inheritance be of the law, it is no more a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law, it was added because of transgression. Now I want to turn, keep your place there, I'm going to turn to Romans 4 and verse 15 for one brief moment. Romans 4 and verse 15, and I'm going to read just one verse. 
Because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Where no law is, there is no transgression. If a policeman appeared at your door with a charge, uh, what do they call it, an indictment perhaps, or maybe a warrant for your arrest, and said, you're wanted for murder, and you know that you're the kind of a person who wouldn't even step on an ant. You've never even killed a dog or a canary. You never even choked to death your pet parakeet, let alone think about murdering somebody. And yet he's going to haul you off to jail. Now, he can't get away with that. It's ridiculous. How in the world can you be arrested when you never broke a law? It simply says where no law is, there is no transgression. You can't run non-existent stoplights. If there is no stoplight there, you simply didn't run the stoplight. Now, I want you to, by just a simple line, if you're keeping notes, just draw a little line, just a line, just a straight little line. And above that little line, just label it Ten Commandments, God's Law. And then on the right-hand side of it, just make a little squiggle, kind of a little up-and-down thing, or maybe just drop it off the end and kind of make a little sign like it had been broken, maybe a little X on the end of it where it stopped. It got broken. Now, make another little line nearby that, not connected to it, and label it on out, you know, God's Ten Commandments. Now, if you have that, you have a, a law there, a long line, and in the middle of it, it's been broken. Now, where no law is, there is no breaking of the law. Where no law is, there is no transgression. Now, we're going to add a splice like you would to a rope that is broken, or like you would to a big metal cable that can be spliced or interwoven to that little line you drew. And so above that line, attaching it above it to the line you broke on both sides, draw another line and label that the book of the law or sacrifices. It says here in Galatians 3 and verse 19, Wherefore then serveth the law, it was added, because something was broken. It was added like splicing a broken link in a chain or a cable or a rope. In this case, your chain or cable or rope is the Ten Commandments of God. And human beings, the nation of Israel, broke that law. And so God added almost like a splice or a break or like putting a broken or an injured leg or an arm into a cast and holding it immobile there and making sure that it thumps along for six weeks while it's trying to mend. The book of the law could be looked upon as a splice, looked upon as a cast to hold together a broken condition between the people of God, Israel, who had broken God's law. Simple precept. Wherefore then serve of the law, verse 19, it was added because there was a law being broken. I'll paraphrase it that way. The book of the law, the rituals, the washing, the ablutions, the meat and drink offerings, the daily sacrifice came along later. I spake not unto them in the day that I brought them by the hand out of the land of Egypt concerning sacrifices. But wherefore then serveth sacrifices? serves the law, it was added because they were breaking my Ten Commandments, I added another law, a lesser law, which is a schoolmaster that it might bring them finally to the time of Jesus Christ. It was added because of transgression till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against or hostile to the promises of God. God forbid. 
For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law, and you would never have needed a Savior. If you could earn your salvation, if you could put your hand to doing a certain number of good acts or good deeds, it doesn't really matter for the simple sake of argument, frankly, whether people want to insist that this is talking about the Ten Commandments or the Book of the Law. It is talking about the Book of the Law. But even if they presuppose the Ten Commandments, the same truth still holds, and that is that even by the observing of the Ten Commandments perfectly for a hundred lifetimes without fail, you could still never be saved, because salvation comes not through the observance of the Ten Commandments. God requires you to observe the Ten Commandments, but that isn't what saves you. What saves you is the blood of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That is what is efficacious to save you. A little later on it says in verse 22, But the Scripture has shut up all, concluded all under sin. What is sin? First John 3, 4, Sin is the transgression of the law, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which afterward should be revealed. Wherefore the law, the book of the law, the whole subject of this third chapter of Galatians, was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we're no longer under a schoolmaster, for you're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Remember again then that the book of the law cannot disannul that it should make the promise of no effect, that the works of the law, the added rituals, were added because there was a law, meaning the Ten Commandments, being broken. The Ten Commandments antedated the book of the law, and they will postdate the book of the law into all eternity. The book of the law was ushered in as, a added, as an added schoolmaster after the terms and conditions of the Old Covenant had been pre uh, presented or proposed to the people. God said, here are the terms and conditions, the Ten Commandments, the statutes, and the judgments. And he mentioned there about sacrifices? No, according to Jeremiah 7.22. And they said, all that thou hast said, we will do. And God said, see that you do it. Never reminders. And almost instantly, they began breaking his law. So eventually, he added all the daily sacrifices. And then finally, as of the time when the Apostle Paul is trying to explain to the Jewish people during his day who were still caught up in that ergon of the law, the works of the law, that it's no longer necessary to go through circumcision, go through all the washings and the meat and drink offerings and everything else. Notice a little later on in Amos 5 and verse 18. Amos 5 and verse 18. I believe this is quite a, a significant scripture, and sometimes you tend, I'm afraid, to see secondary shadowy meanings in some of these scriptures. It talks, beginning in verse 18, about those that might desire the day of the eternal. And it talks about your feast days, your solemn assemblies, and burnt offerings and meat offerings, and all that people make into a religion. People come up with earth, earthly social customs and traditions, 
they come up with their own man-made religion and they can feel very righteous and very holy while they're observing all of those things. But here God's word says, Woe unto you, verse 18, that desire the day of the eternal. To what end is it for you? The day of the eternal is darkness and not light, as if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. Shall not the day of the eternal be darkness and not light, even very dark and no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feast days. Not God's feast days of Leviticus 20, uh, 23rd chapter, but their feast days, their ideas of worship. And I will not smell, that is, I won't listen and won't smell, won't be very pleasantly impressed by the incense or the smell of burning flesh in your solemn assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. He said in one prophecy in the book of Hosea that all of Bashan, all of these various lands are not fit to burn. He says, away with it. He said, I'm not going to look at it anymore. I can show you or imagine at least a dozen scriptures where God Almighty himself says he doesn't like the idea of sacrifices. People don't seem to understand that. They can't seem to get it through their heads that in the Old Covenant, in the Old Covenant times, it was not God's perfect will that those people go through all those routines of sacrifices. He didn't originally want it. And he said it didn't really do any good. Hebrews, the tenth chapter, for by the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats there is no remission of sin. Hebrews, the eighth chapter, that it talks about the continual cunning and meat and drink offerings cannot make those who bring them perfect or clean. There was no real cleansing. It was just a ceremony they went through. It was added because they'd been breaking God's Ten Commandments. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take thou away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your vials, but let judgment run down as water, and righteousness as a mighty stream. Again, the same attitude we saw in Jeremiah 7.22. Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. He wants judgment. He wants righteousness. Have you offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years, O house of Israel? But you have borne the tabernacle of your Moloch, the triune your images, and the star of your God, which you made to yourselves. Therefore, I will cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus, says the Eternal, whose name is the God of hosts. It's interesting, a little later on, I can't help but read a portion of this because it seems to be significant. Woe unto them that are at ease in Zion. The nation of Israel may be a shadowy secondary type, the church, and trust in the mountain of Samaria. That is the capital of the northern tribes of Israel, of course, during the day that Amos wrote this prophecy, which are named chief of the nations to whom the house of Israel came. Pass you unto Calna and see, and from thence go to Hamath the great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Be they better than these kingdoms, or their border greater than your border? You that put far away the evil day and cause the seed of violence to come near, that lie upon beds of ivory, that stretch themselves upon their couches and eat the lambs out of the flock and the calves out of the midst of the stall, that chant to the sounds of the viol, that invent for themselves instruments of music like David, that drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the chief ointments, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. I can't help but see some parallels. I will not elaborate. Therefore, now shall they go captive with the first that go captive, 
and the banquet of them that fret themselves shall be removed. A little later on it says in verse 12, Shall horses run upon the rock? Will one plow there with oxen? For you have turned judgment into gall, and the fruit of righteousness into hemlock, a poison, bitterness, wormwood. You which rejoice in a thing of nothing, and would say, Have we not taken to us horns by our own strength? But behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, says the eternal God of hosts, and they shall afflict you from the entering in of Hemath under the river of the wilderness, and of course some of their borders being mentioned. Now, in Daniel, the ninth chapter, I want to show you a prophecy that is not yet fulfilled. In Daniel, the ninth chapter, and beginning to read in verse 27, of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And it says, beginning in verse 27, And he, the Messiah, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Now, a day is a year being fulfilled, and a week is seven years. And Jesus' ministry lasted only three and one-half years, and it says, and in the midst of the week, and it was literally the midst of the week in that day or that week of the crucifixion because he was crucified on a Wednesday, and so it was doubly the midst of the week. It was in exactly the middle of a seven-year ministry that Jesus is to fulfill with all humanity as his audience. He came unto his own, and his own received him not, but he said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And you can read of that third angel's message in the book of Revelation. You can read in Isaiah 66 and other prophecies of how the coastlands of the sea, the isles that wait for his law. So certainly, the prophecies about a final great fulfillment of the second half of a seven-year ministry of Jesus Christ are yet to be fulfilled. It says in the Bible, the Word of God, He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause what? The sacrifice and the oblation, ablution, the washing, to cease. What does it say he would cause to cease? The sacrifice and the oblation. Does it say one word about tithing, the Sabbath, the holy days, the Ten Commandments? the dietary laws that God Almighty himself gave because he is the creator of the flesh of creatures that crawl along the sea bottoms or that he made to be walking garbage cans and disposal units like the hogs out here in the, the ground of uh, Georgia? Is there any remote hint that what was nailed to the stake, what was nailed to the cross, were the dietary restrictions? Or didn't he say he would cause the sacrifice and the oblations or the ablutions to cease? That's what he caused to cease, because there's no more requirement for them. And now let's turn to the 8th chapter of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, the 8th chapter. And we'll see a little more about that. Actually, the whole book of Hebrews has a great deal to do with Old and New Covenant. But this particular chapter is really a hair-raiser. Beginning in verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there should no place have been sought for the second for finding fault with them, that is, with the people of Israel who broke it. He saith, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with, and he repeats it again, and this is New Testament repetition of Jeremiah 31, 31. Right, exact quotation. It doesn't say the church. It does not say a tiny handful of cloistered individual, individuals who are hiding out 
in a little church hierarchy, a little church organization, hiding their lights and going about checking up on each other about how well they are doing in fulfilling doctrine. It's a vast thing of global importance that talks about great multiple hundreds of millions of human beings, the great race of Israel, the United States, the British Commonwealth of Nations, and all of the peoples of Northwestern Europe, and those Israelis over in the land of Israel today. That's who he's going to make the covenant with. And he is now proposing the terms and the conditions of a new or a better covenant, which has not yet been ratified. It has been proposed, and a signature has been written as if in the blood of Jesus Christ, signed here on the dotted line. But the signature is waiting with a little X mark for hundreds of millions of human beings who have not yet signed their part of that agreement. Jesus has signed his part, signed, sealed, and delivered. It's being held out. Here's the agreement. Here's the document. Let me show you what I have here for you. And there's a place marked where you're supposed to sign. So he said, again, notice that it's with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according, verse 9, to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of, the hand, out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Eternal. Paul is writing, probably this would have been written in about 59 or 60, I don't know what year A.D., but many years after Jesus Christ of Nazareth had been resurrected, the Apostle Paul is writing about this new covenant and the old covenant to the Jews who, of course, were continually inside that same system, the book of the law, the daily, weekly, annual holy day offerings and sacrifices. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws. What are his laws? Laws, plural. But you can look in the Old Testament and find out that the most important law of all is God's Ten Commandments, plural. But there are other precepts and other laws, and there is a law of tithing, and there is the law that has to do with God's annual holy days. And there is the law not only of the weekly but the annual Sabbath, Exodus 31, Leviticus 23. And it's interesting to me that in this scripture, which is going to judge us, in the tenth verse of the eighth chapter of Hebrews, I will put my laws, plural, into their mind and write them, plural, in their hearts. And I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor. He quotes the whole passage that we read already in Jeremiah 31, 31, 2, and 3. They shall not teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. Now, let's go on, because there's more and more coming here that is really going to be quite interesting. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more, in that he saith, a new covenant, he has made the first old. Now, that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Back a little bit to Haggai, the second chapter, and beginning in verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, says the Eternal, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, says the Eternal, 
and work, for I am with you, says the Eternal of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Fear ye not, for thus says the Eternal of hosts, yet once, it's a little while now, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations and the desire, the wealth, and the desirable things of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Eternal of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Eternal of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former, says the Eternal of hosts, and in this place will I give peace, says the Eternal of hosts. Jesus Christ of Nazareth died because we and all of humankind had been breaking his law. He did not die, so we can go on breaking it. Do I believe in the new covenant already being active, being alive, being ratified in my own heart? Yes, because you see, I've already signed on the dotted line. Jesus Christ has already proposed the terms and the conditions of the new covenant to me. And his signature was written in his own blood. And when I went into that baptismal pool, and I had hands laid on me for the receiving of the Holy Spirit. I acknowledge that Jesus Christ, my high priest, is able to forgive all of my sins, that I have put my signature on the dotted line. He's already got me in his hands, and he thanked his Father of those whom you have given me. I have lost none, and he is never going to lose me. He's never going to let go of me, because he's got me securely in his hands. Do you really believe he died for you? You're right there at the foot of the stake, and you're looking up at that Savior, Jesus Christ. And he is moaning and wailing in pain, and you're looking at the moment of his death approaching, and you realize he had you as a human being in mind, and he did that for you. I don't care if you're a woman. I don't care if you're an older person or a teenager who thinks, well, I'm not old enough yet, so I'm not responsible. Or an older person who feels, well, I've had a rough, tough life, I've kind of been through it, I don't think he had me in mind. He did have you as a person, a personality, a unique spark of life in this universe in mind, and he died for you.